AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat and support your weight management journey. And right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com. The lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Are you feeling overwhelmed by anxiety? struggling to find restful sleep or plagued by a restless inability to focus it's time to break free from the chains of mental health challenges and discover a path to healthy living welcome to amen university founded by renowned psychiatrist and brain health expert dr daniel amen dr amen alongside a team of esteemed doctors and experts in their fields understands the struggles you're facing and are here to offer solutions from debilitating anxiety to sleepless nights filled with worry our courses are meticulously crafted to target at these specific challenges head on. Join us on a journey of transformation led by Dr. Amen and a roster of top-tier professionals. Say goodbye to the constant battle with your mind and embrace a future filled with hope and possibility. Visit our website today to explore our courses and start your journey towards a brighter tomorrow. Use code BRAIN10 and get 10% off. That's code BRAIN10 and get 10% off your first purchase. Amen University, because your mental health matters. Personology is a production of iHeartRadio. Muhammad Ali, whose nickname was aptly the greatest, is regarded as the greatest professional boxer of all time. He was also a celebrated celebrity figure of the 20th century, known for his political and social activism, humanitarian works, philanthropy, and champion of the Muslim faith. My guest today is Jonathan Eig. Eig is the author of five books, three of them New York Times bestsellers. A former staff writer for the Wall Street Journal, Eig has also written for the New York Times, the New Yorker Online, and the Washington Post. His latest book is Ali, A Life, which won the Penn ESPN Award for Literary Sports Writing. Ali was also named Best Book of the Year by Sports Illustrated, one of the 10 Best Nonfiction Books of the Year by the Wall Street Journal, and one of the New York Times notable books of 2018. Muhammad Ali, 
was born Cassius Clay, January of 1942, in Louisville. And we will talk a little bit about his family of origin, his father, who was a sign painter, and his mother, who was a homemaker. But really what matters is the kind of people that his parents were and the kind of relationship that they had with their son. So let's talk a little bit about his namesake, his father, Cassius. Yeah, Cassius Clay Sr., Cassius Marcellus Clay Sr., uh, everybody called him Cash, was a great character, um, a a womanizer, um, a very um, effervescent, very popular guy, loved to go out and drink, um, drank a little too much, got arrested a few times for public intoxication and ran around on his wife. So um, he was this very compelling, very dynamic figure that, you know, in some ways his his two sons really idolized. But he was also a, a troubled figure who brought violence into the home and, and uh, you know, beat his wife on occasion, came home drunk and, and had and beaten his kids a couple of times too. So, uh, you know, I think this is a, one of the really key relationships in, in shaping young Muhammad Ali. Particularly in terms of thinking about what Ali went on to do with his life, that it's interesting to think about, as you said, he this father who, in the kindest way you could say, was maybe a scoundrel, you know, that he was a womanizer and that he uh, got into trouble, but people liked him. But at the same time, as you said, there was this dark side to him. He did hit his wife. He did hit his children. And he had interactions with the police because he got into fights, physical fights. And this is important because when you think about children who grow up in abusive homes, they have to find a way to cope with the abuse of what's going on. And often what they do, and this is why you see this repeated pattern in families, is they use a defense mechanism called identification with the aggressor, which means basically they've been the victim and they've been the powerless one. And to cope with the trauma of that, they grow into somebody who tries to have the power and be the doer, not the one done to. And so we often see this pattern of kids who've been in abusive homes going on to become abusers themselves in domestic abuse or in in abusing their children. And of course, while that is not what Muhammad Ali is known for, he did go on to be a fighter, a boxer. And um, that would be an incredible sublimation of another defense mechanism, a way of taking urges to be the hitter, to be the powerful one, and using it in a way that is constructive. So and just in terms of already right out of the gate, thinking about motivators for young Cassius Clay to be interested in fighting and in boxing. That's right. One of the things that really struck me about Ali that I was so interested in is that he was never a bully in school. Uh, he was much bigger than the other kids in his class. You look at the school pictures, the class photos, and he towers over everybody in the class. He grew not only uh, large, but he grew early. And he um, struggled in school, uh, later discovered that he was dyslexic, but he really lagged behind. And I was always kind of surprised that he didn't lash out and become violent in any way, that he didn't you know, become a bully. And, and he didn't. He was the class clown instead. It wasn't until he was 12 that he discovered boxing. He had some physical prowess as a young boy. He, as you said, was bigger, 
stronger and even in some ways faster already that he was uh, not terribly engaged in the academics of school to say the least, but he turned his, let's say, energies to a lot of athletic pursuit. You tell this great story of how he raced this, this bus to both entertain students who were in the bus, but also because running and being physical was was part of his makeup at a very early age. That's right. Uh, he liked the idea of getting in shape. He liked the idea of getting stronger and being the strongest and the fastest. Um, and the fact that he could also um, entertain the other kids on the school bus uh, was was key because he loved attention. He desperately needed attention. His mother said that he used to stand up in the stroller because he wanted people to see him even as they were as, as he was a baby uh, walking down the street. And and that seems to have really been a part of his DNA that he just needed to be noticed all the time. And that may come from feeling like he didn't get the love of his father. He certainly felt like he got the love of his mother. And his mother was in many ways the opposite of, of Cash. She was this sweet, her nickname was Bird, because she had this sweet little high-pitched laugh. And everybody loved Bird. Bird was 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 stable and solid and, and took care of her family, took care of other families, like so many uh, Black women of the 1950s. Uh, the only work she could get was as a domestic cooking and cleaning for white families. But she was the, you know, the epitome of a, of, a, of a loving mother. So he had that balance from his parents. Well, she was, as you said, described as very angelic, a churchgoer, a caretaker at all costs, very selfless. And that's important because his model for the first woman in his life um, seems to be pursue him, let's say, in terms of who he chooses as wives and as girlfriends and what he expects of them. Certainly, you see as he moves through life, definitely an expectation of caretaking, definitely an expectation of selflessness on the part of women. Um, Sometimes it seems that he later takes a lot of advantage of that. But clearly, his model for a woman seems very much based on his relationship with and the model that his mother set. Um, also important is his relationship with his younger brother. Yeah, that's right. And, and the younger brother kind of serves in that role of being the, uh, of, of giving him even more attention. His, his younger brother is, is kind of like uh, his Sancho Panza. You know, he's there's there all the time to give support and encouragement and to, to remind Ali of how great he is and Muhammad's hungry. The first thing he, his brother, you know, does is run to the kitchen without even, you know, being asked to go make him a sandwich. He's obedient um, fan. He's he's the ultimate fan. And he stays close with Rudy. Rudy, his brother. He stays close with Rudy and involves him in all of his life ongoings as his second mate throughout his life. So that remains a very important relationship for him. But. Equally important to the impact of this mother and this father and this brother is the environment in which she's growing up in the, in the culture in the years of which he's growing up where basically this is the Jim Crow South. Uh, he grows up with tremendous race consciousness. His father has some strong opinions about what it is to be a black man in Louisville in those years and what he thinks his son can and cannot accomplish as a result. Yeah, once again, with everything uh, around Ali, it, it's beautifully complicated because he's growing up in the Jim Crow South. He's, he's you know, he's born into segregation, um, and, and but, but he's not poor. Most boxers 
tend to come out of poverty. Ali lives in a middle-class neighborhood where he sees people going to work every day, um, including business owners, people who own funeral homes and, and dentists' offices and school teachers and principals. His family's a little bit sort of on the lower end of that uh, spectrum, but still solidly within the, the middle class. So he sees this proud community that he lives in. But at the same time, if he goes downtown, he can't shop in the clothing stores. He, he can't um, try on clothes in, in the department stores. He can't uh, sit anywhere but the balcony in the movie theater. And there are most of the city parks in, in Louisville are completely off limits to him. So he grows up knowing that he's considered second class and he, he can't understand why, for example, um, you know, they go to church and they pray to a white Jesus. Um, you know, he's, he's puzzled by that and, and he can't understand why, um, skin color should make a difference. Why should he be categorized this way? And when he tells his father one day that, that he wants to be rich and famous, his father you know, laughs at him and says, you can't be, you can't be rich and famous. I'll tell you why. And he just points to his skin and says, look at that, you know, you're too dark. You're never going to be anything. Mm. So a couple of interesting psychodynamics are set up early in the life of Ali. These models that are before him, his clear temperamental uh, set up to be an extrovert. I mean, that seems very obvious from his life and lifestyle and what he seeks out that unlike introverts who gain and need some time alone to reestablish their energy, he clearly gets his energy off of being with other people and playing to other people, interacting with others. Very, very extroverted man. And that's something that probably he was just biologically born with. Yeah, he hated being alone all his life. So that's 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 often what exactly what a what a pure extrovert would say. Um, and they'll go to great lengths to be around other people. So that that desire for attention, you know, maybe some combination of wanting to, you know, aspire as everyone does and having a father telling him he could never be special. And so feeling insecure in that way and looking for things that would shore up his self-esteem or make him feel that he was able to be special. and. Being an extrovert, wanting to be recognized, therefore, and interacting with other people. And then you take this whole milieu and you plunk him into school where, as you mentioned, he really struggled. He really struggled because, as it turned out, he had dyslexia and could not read. That's right. And I think that must have been incredibly frustrating for him. And, and it, uh, but, but he, again, didn't act out in a, in a bullying kind of way, as he might have. He, um, he, he, just turned up the notch, turned up the levels and went even more extroverted and just tried to be hilarious, tried to be the class clown. And then this miraculous thing happens and he finds the perfect cure for all of his problems. It's something that satisfies every bit of his enormous appetite and that's boxing. Mm -hmm. At the age of 12, he, he stumbles accidentally into a gym where a white police officer is training kids how to box and there are black and white kids in the ring together. So, I mean, it had to be like a, a monstrous epiphany where he suddenly sees that there's this place, a boxing ring, where the normal world, the normal rules of the world do not apply. Here's a white police officer who wants to help him, who wants to be kind to him, who's working with black and white kids together. And there are white kids and black kids in a boxing ring punching one another. You know, his father has told him all his life that if you get into a fight with a white kid, you're going to jail. If you have any kind of run-in with a white police officer, you're in trouble. And here, the opposite seems to apply. And then, best of all, 
he gets to fight in front of crowds. And on Friday nights, those fights are on television. He can't believe it. Like, this is a dream come true. What could be better than this? He gets to punch white people and they'll put him on TV for it. He brings to the mix, right, this this background of what he's been told. So this this is like a revelation, as you point out. But also, I think it's important to understand when one has dyslexia, one often has another diagnosis along with it. And the most common one is attention deficit disorder, particularly attention deficit disorder with hyperactivity. And as you said, he seemed to many people who interacted with him, particularly his mother, but others, like he was a very hyperactive kid, that he was, in addition to being trying to be the class clown and get attention, that he was moving all the time, that he had high energy and high movement all the time. And for someone who feels hyperactivity, which feels kind of like ants in your pants all the time. The idea of being able to jump around a ring and box and hit people and get feedback would be like phenomenal, would be an engaging, absorbing, and actually physically relieving kind of activity because it's so busy, because it really plays into feeling hyperactive. So there were so many things that could lead to, and then of course, having this moment where where actually it was there, that really existed. Yeah, it was really, like I said, almost miraculous because he tried basketball and, and football and baseball and he hated those things. There was, there was too much time standing around. And, you know, in football, he said, you got to wear a helmet. Nobody can see you. And this was really serendipity. He had yeah. basically had a new bicycle that his family had given him and it was stolen. And he was enraged and he marched down to the police station to really report this. And this is when he comes upon this white police officer who happens to be the boxing coach. That's right. And the white police officer says, uh, if you want to learn to box, come back. And Ali comes back and, in fact, finds another gym and starts training at two gyms at one time because he just can't get enough of this. And it absolutely transforms his life. And he starts almost immediately telling everybody, I'm going to be the heavyweight champion of the world. He starts, you know, imagining, daydreaming, sitting in class, imagining that the principal comes on to make the announcement that Muhammad Ali has just won the gold medal in the Olympics. Uh, But he's still Cassius Clay at this point. Um, He starts sketching pictures of himself, you know, in a boxing robe with the words world's champion, you know, across across the back. Um, As he once said, you know, years later, he said, I was calling myself the greatest before I knew it was true. So he is in basically middle school and then high school and he's he's boxing already. He's boxing for crowds. He's getting positive feedback. He's finding that he's good and that's giving him a sense of self-esteem. And why is he good? Because, and this becomes actually the the hallmark of who Ali becomes as a boxer. He doesn't use typical boxing techniques. Yeah, that's right. It's really fascinating. He, um, again, seems to just get lucky that he's got these, this, this, um, all these things line up perfectly for him. He never really takes the coaching seriously. You know, in boxing, you're supposed to keep your hands up to protect your head at all times. You throw a punch and you put your hands right back to protect your head and you duck punches. You you don't just, um, like lean back because if you lean back, you're going to get tagged eventually. But Ali develops this style all of his own where he he keeps his hands down low, doesn't protect his head, just moves his head out of the way. And his reflexes are so fantastic that he gets away with it. And everybody keeps saying, well, when he gets to fight some real opponents, when he, when he moves up to some, some serious boxers, he's going to get clobbered, but that never happens. He somehow manages to consistently 
um, find a way to win. And, and some of it is because he's, he's just got these natural gifts. He's so fast and he's so big. And this kind of a combination of speed and strength is really unusual. Today, we can look at the neuroscience and the data that support this. He has some actually other special talent in his pocket, if you will. And that is when a person has dyslexia, their brain is wired a little bit differently. And that is the reason that actually they can't process parts of words um, called phonemes. And that's why it's so difficult for them to learn to read. But this same difference in wiring also seems to confer a strength. And that is a wider net for spotting visual and auditory and cognitive material, but wider spatial attention. And what does that mean, visual spatial attention? It means that their ability to see what's in the periphery of their visual field is greater than someone who does not have dyslexia. That's right. And that means as a boxer, right, your ability to see and process and use the information that's coming from a wider lens, from a a wider view than someone who doesn't have that would be better and that you might see that and process it more quickly. And also another strength of people with dyslexia is an increased ability to discern patterns. And often in sports of all kinds, but particularly in boxing, there are patterns to boxing styles. So this combination might have been what allowed at that time Cassius Clay to use a different technique because he would be faster and he would see more and he would see punches coming or moves coming before someone else might. Absolutely. And when you're talking about elite athletes, you know, a split second, a a hundredth of a second makes a huge difference. And when you're a boxer and you can move, start moving your head out of the way of a punch just a split second sooner. And when you can discern where the other fighter's head is moving as he's throwing that punch and prepare to counteract it, you have an enormous advantage. And Ali could never really quite explain it, but he would say, I don't know how it happens. It just happens that my chin is always just a little bit out of the way when the punch lands. Like, I can just make that that punch glance off my chin in a way that other fighters would have been hit full on. And he sensed that he had this ability and he didn't really know how because it was just completely native to it. Let's take a quick break here. We'll be back in a moment. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula, berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite, with just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. Right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com, the lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease snag a job is where america goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring with access to over six million active hourly workers snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs 
on demand, tempt to hire part time or full time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy to use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Are you feeling overwhelmed by anxiety, struggling to find restful sleep, or plagued by a restless inability to focus? It's time to break free from the chains of mental health challenges and discover a path to healthy living. Welcome to Amen University, founded by renowned psychiatrist and brain health expert, Dr. Daniel Amen. Dr. Amen, alongside a team of esteemed doctors and experts in their fields, understands the struggles you're facing and are here to offer solutions. From debilitating anxiety to sleepless nights filled with worry, our courses are meticulously crafted to target these specific challenges head on. Join us on a journey of transformation led by Dr. Amen and a roster of top tier professionals. Say goodbye to the constant battle with your mind and embrace a future filled with hope and possibility. Visit our website today to explore our courses and start your journey towards a brighter tomorrow. Use code BRAIN10 and get 10% off. That's code BRAIN10 and get 10% off your first purchase. Amen University, because your mental health matters. Sadly, even though this was amazing and he was uh, doing more and more boxing, getting more and more accolades, that he was able to make money. He had people start to back him to and help him with the management of that money. He, as you pointed out, loved the fame. He never learned to read. He never, I mean, he was now traveling so much for one in high school. Um, but in those days, they didn't have the kind of schooling that they have now to help children who have dyslexia learn different techniques and different styles so that they can read. And it was really that his high school principal ultimately said, you know, we can see this guy's going somewhere and we're not going to be the ones to have not graduated him. Uh, we, we would like a superstar to have graduated from our high school. So he graduates, but he really doesn't get the academic tools that, say, would have probably benefited him in life. And, and that ends up being important simply, I think, in the world of uh, later on when he could be taken advantage of financially, sometimes his ability to, say, read a contract for himself or, uh, or manage any of the finances was, was not so good. Yeah, that's true. Uh, although I, I suspect that even if he had learned, and he did eventually learn to read um, uh, slowly, but he, he got better at it. I, I suspect even if he knew how to read, there was something else in his personality that made him vulnerable to, to con men and shady managers. He was just so trusting and he just always believed that everything was going to work out fine for him. He had this incredible sense of confidence that he would always have money. He would always make more money. And that if, if he needed, if he lost some of it to some shady con man, well, that shady con man must have needed it, must have, must have needed the money more than he did. And he, he just had this very like um, laissez-faire about a relationship about money. What time was it when the whole issue of the Olympics presented for him? He won the Olympics, uh, the gold medal in 1960 when he was still in high school. 
uh, won the the uh, the light heavyweight division and came back and to to the United States and was suddenly a star. And in fact, even in the Olympics, even over there, um, the newspaper reporters all before he'd even won the thing, before they even knew whether he could box, they all said, "We really hope this kid wins because he's got such personality, such charisma, that, and the sports world really needs a needs a kid like this to brighten up." The, uh, the the boxing universe, which had become you know kind of dull and was losing popularity, so people recognized his star power even when he was a kid. So he's in high school. He's an Olympic gold medalist. He is outgoing and handsome and charismatic, and he likes girls. He really likes girls. <laughs> he talks about how much he likes girls, but he's shy, which is so interesting. It's the one environment that he seems to be really socially inhibited in. He definitely describes himself as shy around girls. And so even though you'd think this must be a high school boy who's definitely, you know, having girlfriends, he really didn't. Yeah, it was interesting when he turned pro uh, a few years later, a lot of the sports writers who covered him thought he was either, he was certainly a virgin in their opinion, and that he might've been gay because he was so nervous around girls and, and seemed to you know, have no swagger whatsoever. And I talked to a girl who went out with him once in high school and she told this hilarious story. Uh, she was a year older. She was a senior and he was a junior. He was already somewhat famous because he'd won all these amateur tournaments. And he walked her home from a, 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 a play at the, at the school. And when they got up to the top of the stairs, he asked if he could kiss her goodnight. And when he leaned in for the kiss, he fainted and tumbled down the stairs. Um, floof. <laughs> rolled down the whole flight of stairs. And when he got to the bottom, he looked up at her and said, well, ain't, ain't nobody going to believe this. You won't tell, will you? <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, and I really do think he was terribly shy. Um, it, it's not clear to me whether he, he may well have been a, a virgin until he met his, his first wife, uh, Sanji. It seems that after that, he more than made up for it. Um, yeah, that's for sure. He, uh, a man with uh, four wives and many, many many other women. Even when he was married, he would be with other women. He expected his wives to accept that. The woman that you describe or in that story was actually, she was a little older than he was. She actually had a child. She was being a single mother. He really liked her, I guess. I guess it worked out after the initial fainting. He kept her in his life, actually, even when he got married. And um, that was something that was part of this man. He felt that people who were important to him, everybody should understand that they were important to him and he would be very loyal and he would keep them in his life for long, long periods of time. Yeah, he sort of had the same attitude about women that he had about money. It's like there would always be enough of him to go around. And and that he would th these women would 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 be so happy to have his company that they would be willing to put up with anything, including sharing. Uh, that was his, you know. He viewed himself as being, you know, magnanimous in that way. Uh, one of his managers told me this story of like finding Ali in the hotel room sleeping with the uh, with the with the chambermaid, the woman who'd been cleaning his room, and it was an older, heavy set woman. And the manager said, you know, there are all these gorgeous models waiting for you in the lobby. Like you could have your pick of any one of those gorgeous women down there. Why are you sleeping with, with this maid? And Ali said, because she's going to appreciate it more. And she'll remember this for the rest of her life. That's, 
fascinating to me. It is. Um, it certainly is at that point amazingly self-referential, and <laughs> we could definitely consider the word narcissism in there. Yeah, right. He's making love to himself the most there. Right? Essentially, he is saying, "This is I am so amazing that she is having this amazing experience," <laughs> and uh, he he definitely had a grandiosity about him. Now, I will say this: when people are surrounded by others and are told 24-7 that they are the greatest and they are lauded with not only not only kinds of compliments all the time, but essentially told they can do no wrong and they are the center of attention, they do develop over time a certain amount of hubris. You see this in world leaders and in high-level sports figures and they come to sort of drink their own tea, as it were, and and feel that that actually, yeah, they can do no wrong. And so whether Cassius was a young person who already had a good dollop of narcissism and carried that through, or whether that's something that developed more as a young man by starting to be told already in high school, you are the best and you can do no wrong and development more of hubris is hard to know. But there is a lot of evidence as he is a man, at least, that he has a tremendous amount of grandiosity. It's hard to call grandiosity, actually, when you are the greatest at something. <laughs> but he was doing it before he was the greatest. You know, but he was doing um, it before he was When he was a kid, when he was boxing in high school, he would enter these amateur tournaments. And sometimes there'd be 30-year-old uh, amateurs that he'd be fighting against. So he'd be, they'd be twice his age. Yeah. And he would go into the dressing room before the fight and mock these people who had far more accomplished careers, who had won way more bouts, who were bigger and stronger than him, and just tease them and say, you've got no chance. What are you doing here? Why are you fighting me? The, the cockiness was there. Maybe it was a compensation. Maybe it was, you know, that, that was his way of dealing with the fear. Uh, maybe it has something to do with, you know, having been an abused kid and not being willing to show um, his vulnerability. I don't know, but it was definitely there before he was truly great. After the Olympics, he takes off on his career. He is boxing. He is winning. He comes into contact with the nation of Islam. And this becomes all important, really, to him. Let's talk a little bit about that and his relationship with Elijah Muhammad. What happens there? In some ways, this is like his discovery of boxing. It's something that will absolutely change his life. And it somehow seems like this is exactly what he needed or what he was waiting for. Because um, as we said, he grew up with this very conflicted feeling about his father. His father was was a drinker and, and a rabble rouser and had a very unsteady income. And then here's this religion, the Nation of Islam, with this leader named Elijah Muhammad, who's this tiny, mousy uh, man who conveys this enormous sense of strength by saying that we don't drink. We don't carry on with women. We will build our own nation. We don't need white people to give us permission to exist. We don't need white people at all. We can build our own country. We will carve out our own land and we will build our own businesses and, and black people will prove that they are the greatest race of them all. This sense of discipline and this sense of something bigger than himself. Uh, the fact that this, this tiny little man could be so powerful really intrigued Ali. He decides that, you know, he's not really a Christian 
man. That was something that was forced upon him by not just his family, but really by the culture and by the history of Black people that they were told, you will be this religion, you will be this sort of educated, you will have this name. He decides Cassius Clay is not is not the name that I choose. It's the name that was given to me. Clay is a white slavery owner's name, and I don't accept that any longer. So he has this real shift in identity, a sort of a, an awakening, as you describe it, to him that that this this resonates for him. And it's important not only for his personal identity in terms of changing his name, in terms of who he aligns with and what he believes, but it's also important because at the same time this is going on, the civil rights movement is also going on. And most Black people and white people are hearing that the civil rights movement is about desegregation. It is about being together. It is about equal rights together. And that is not what the Nation of Islam says. The Nation of Islam is saying we are entitled to at least the equal rights and they should be separate. We should have our own and we shouldn't be together, which which clashes with culturally what's happening at the time. That's right. And it's so interesting because Ali grows up um, steeped in the early days of the civil rights movement. You know, he's the same age as Emmett Till. He knew what happened to Emmett Till and he saw the Montgomery bus boycotts breaking out. He saw the sit-ins, the freedom rise. He never really participated in any of that. It didn't seem interesting to him. He had no, seemed to have no interest in politics, no interest in joining the, the movements. He even sort of made fun of the, um, some of the segregation protests, the, uh, the integration protests that were going on in Louisville during his school days, saying that he didn't want to go there and have uh, people yelling at him. He just wanted to box. That was all he was interested in. And then along comes Elijah Muhammad, and suddenly um, he goes even more radical than, than Martin Luther King, even more radical than the mainstream civil rights movement. And I think part of what appealed to him was that it was different, that it was rebelling even more than Martin Luther King. It was saying that, you know, integration isn't the answer. Uh, he's going to take an even more bold and radical approach and say that that we should remain segregated. Black people should just have their own way of doing things, their own independence. The separatist notion really appealed to him. And, and in some ways, I think it's the same kind of discipline that he found in boxing. But the threat of being himself anti-authoritarian, which is evident since early life, you know, he isn't going to do something just because his father told him to do it. He isn't going to do something just because the teacher said to do it. He's going to do what he thinks is best or what he thinks is right. Yeah. When Elijah Muhammad split with Malcolm X, Ali had to make a choice. Do you go with the young rebel who's become your friend and your mentor, or do you stick with the authority figure who, who started it all, the man at the very top, Elijah Muhammad? And this was one of the most difficult decisions of Ali's life, um, because he loved Malcolm X like a brother, but Elijah Muhammad was more of a father figure, and he had to choose. And he chose Elijah Muhammad. And, and, and in some ways, he may have written the death warrant for Malcolm X because Malcolm was, was soon after assassinated and, and he, he did not have the protection of the Nation of Islam. Both of these men wanted Muhammad Ali with them so that even though Elijah Muhammad is the, is the leader of the movement, 
he still he wanted Muhammad Ali to be with him, right? Because at this point, Ali is is such a huge name and influencer. That's right. Um, it, it meant the world in terms of promoting the nation of Islam, in terms of getting new members. The fact that they could brag the heavyweight champion was one of theirs. And this was after Ali beats Sonny Liston. And that's when he announces to the world that he is not a Christian anymore. He's a member of the nation of Islam and he's joining Malcolm X and, and Elijah Muhammad. And this was incredibly radical. And it's fascinating for a guy like Ali who wants to be loved to think that at the moment of his greatest acclaim, when he finally wins the heavyweight championship, he's willing to risk it all by joining the nation of Islam and and and, and throwing away the popularity, throwing away the potential endorsement contracts from Coca-Cola and all the TV appearances. Uh, he's willing to risk all of the fame and celebrity that he's built up to that point because of this new belief of his. Well, he loves fighting um, in, in terms of boxing. And as you said, he's now heavyweight champion following his his match with Sonny Liston. And it, as you said, it's 1964. But because of his affiliation with the Nation of Islam, the draft comes up and he feels that he he cannot do it. He will not do it. He will not go to Vietnam. And he's essentially the first of the most famous, let's say, of conscientious objectors. Yet this really more than affects his popularity, to say the least. He People are very angry. They're saying he's doing it because he's afraid to go. You know, he's saying, I mean, not only is he saying, I'm not afraid to go, I, I believe this is wrong, but he's even willing to give up boxing, his beloved boxing and his career, possibly forever. It didn't end up being forever, but he didn't know that at the time, to be part of the Nation of Islam and to not go serve in Vietnam. That's right. A lot of people would question whether he was true to his religion, whether this was a sincere belief or whether he was really um, doing this for political purposes, for personal reasons. But he believed so firmly in the teachings of Elijah Muhammad that he was willing to give up his the, the thing that he wanted most in the world, this, the, his boxing career, his heavyweight championship. And as you pointed out, he didn't know that he was going to be giving it up for a few years. He believed that he was giving it up forever. And he said he would be willing to die before he would serve in Vietnam, before he would fight, because his religion forbade uh, fighting on behalf of, an, of a nation, fighting in any kind of a, of a, of a secular war. So I think there's, there's no question that, he, that his religious beliefs were legitimate. In fact, his religion entered when it came to marriage as well. He got a lot of pressure to be married to another member of the Nation of Islam. He did ultimately marry Belinda who was much younger than he, who was Muslim, his homemaker, but continued to have many affairs. In fact, cruelly asked Belinda or told Belinda that she was going to arrange some of these meetups that, you know, she should make the hotel room and she should leave at the appropriate time because he was going to be with other women. I mean, this became a point of contention, really, right, between he and the, the Nation of Islam. Yeah, the Nation of Islam always talked about uh, marital fidelity, but didn't uh, follow through so well. And uh, Ali, I can have the attitude that that maybe um, you know Islam allowed multiple wives, and that Americans couldn't quite embrace that, so he would kind of keep it on the down low. But he acted as if he were entitled to having multiple wives, and in fact, there were a couple of women that he 
he married in unofficial ceremonies who also believed themselves to be his wives. And at one point, um, you know, he was maintaining relationships with at least three or four of these women at the same time, women who all believed that she was his wife or would be soon. And, uh, you know, this is an incredible um, juggling act, an incredible act of hubris. Whether it has anything to do with the religion or not, I think it probably predates the religion. I think this is just something that Ali had convinced himself he was, he, he could handle and was, and was deserving of. Let's take a quick break here. We'll be back in a moment. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula, berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite, with just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. Right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com, the lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease snag a job is where america goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring with access to over six million active hourly workers snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand tempt to hire part-time or full-time you name the position warehouse worker retail associate grocery store clerk fitness trainer baker stylist bellhop podcast producer yeah Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a Job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Are you feeling overwhelmed by anxiety, struggling to find restful sleep, or plagued by a restless inability to focus? It's time to break free from the chains of mental health challenges and discover a path to healthy living. Welcome to Amen University, founded by renowned psychiatrist and brain health expert, Dr. Daniel Amen. Dr. Amen, alongside a team of esteemed doctors and experts in their fields, understands the struggles you're facing and are here to offer solutions. From debilitating anxiety to sleepless nights filled with worry, our courses are meticulously crafted to target these specific challenges head on. Join us on a journey of transformation led by Dr. Amen and a roster of top-tier professionals. Say goodbye to the constant battle with your mind and embrace a future filled with hope and possibility. Visit our website today to explore our courses and start your journey towards a brighter tomorrow. Use code BRAIN10 and get 10% off. That's code BRAIN10 and get 10% off your first purchase. Amen University, because your mental health matters. He took this, what ended up being this three and a half year break, it was actually during his prime. These would have been important, I guess I'll say years for him as a boxer. 
Absolutely. These were the, arguably the best years of his career. 1967, he's you know, 25, 26 years old. This would have been absolute prime. And when he comes back, finally, three and a half years later, he's clearly slowed down. And not only is that um, bad for him as a boxer, it's bad for him as a human being because he starts getting hit a lot more. And his ability to avoid those punches is is severely diminished. And you start to see him realizing that he has another talent that he didn't really know about. And that talent is one to remain standing after he's already been concussed. Um, after he's taken hundreds and hundreds of punches, he does not fall down. And this becomes one of his great strengths as a boxer. Which is unfortunately not a great strength when you want to look at preserving your brain for your later life. Very little was known at that time about the impact uh, of head trauma in terms of developing Parkinson's disease, but he missed this time period, which was probably good for his brain. But when he comes back, he comes in with this renewed vigor. He, he changes his tactic a little bit as he feels that he's a bit slower and he needs to remain standing and that that is the way that he will, you know, later come back and, and win the match. But it is around 1971, his fight with Joe Frazier, a very big and important fight, which he manages to stay in, even though he's sustaining unbelievable blows and is knocked down and it's 15 rounds. But it is after that fight that one starts to see some brain changes already. No doubt about it. And Ali's doctor told me that he saw changes right there in 1971. And Ali would go on to fight 10 more years. And I said to this doctor, you know, how could you let him keep fighting? And he said, our job was to keep him in the ring. Our job was to help him fight, not to help him not fight. And those, you know, I, I felt bad for the doctor because he was clearly torn about this, that he he contributed in some way to this damage. But Ali's friends, his family, his wives all said, you got to stop. You know, this is bad for you. And they could see it. They could hear it in his voice that his words were becoming slower and, and slurred. And, um, you know, I worked with speech scientists to actually count the number of syllables per second that Ali was using. And you could you can track it over the course of the decade. And, and you can see that he lost a significant portion of his speaking ability. And after each fight, you can see dips um, mm -hmm. in, in his ability to, to speak coherently. And everybody around him knew it. And he just couldn't stop. He, he, he loved the sport. He loved the easy money. You know, he would say, how else am I going to make $3 million in one night? How can I give that up? Not only were people hitting him in the ring and he was he was staying up and taking these this tremendous amount of head trauma but in his practicing he would unlike other boxers he would spar with people that he would ask to actually hit him in the head so that he would sort of toughen up and be able to take it and he would do that without protective headgear and that was not typical of a lot of boxers but clearly you know, more repeated, perhaps lower level, but still trauma to the brain. It was tremendous trauma. These are 250 pound men and they weren't going easy on him. Ali believed that it was kind of like building up calluses, that if you got hit often enough, your brain would become tougher. And he would encourage these giant men, to just hit him in the head and he would keep his hands down on purpose to prove that he could take it and to, and to build up his resistance. And, and this was just tragic. There's no other word for it. We now know, of course, that you know, knocking your brain around within the cavity that the, the skull holds it in means that 
essentially the brain is in, is having repeated hits against the bone. We know that even deep brain structure is influenced by repeated trauma, that there's shearing of tissue inside the brain. And we know from other sports, even like football, that repeated concussions cause cognitive decline, cause ultimately mood disorder, terrible depression long-term. Basically, we're talking about organic brain damage. And in boxers, unlike other sports where, like football, where there's probably organic brain damage, in boxing, there was this specific area from taking hits in the face that was affected, the substantia nigra, which is an area where basically when there's decline in the amount of dopamine that can be produced, you see the development of Parkinson's disease. And there were, you know, sadly, at a fairly young age, there was already evidence of Parkinson's in Muhammad Ali, this flat facial expression that, you know, somebody who had looked unbelievably animated, as we've described him, you know, tremendously electric and with a lot of facial expression and talking quickly and gesticulating, he, over time, right, his face gets less and less emotive appearing. He uh, slows down in his language. He uses fewer words. His body movement slows down. He developed what is called a pill rolling tremor. He developed the stiffness in the limbs that is consistent with Parkinson's. So he really, for many, many years, lived with Parkinson's, but um, it starts to become obvious really toward the end of his fighting career, which is part of what essentially ended his fighting career, that he continued to fight through the 1970s um, into the early eighties, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. He was he was about forty when he when he stopped fighting finally, and some of those symptoms were showing themselves already. And his wife at the time was saying, you know, you've got this tremor in your hand, and, and you're not walking right. You know, how can you how can you box? How can you step into the ring with some of the toughest men on the planet when you can't even really navigate walking across the living room rug? And yet his his doctors and his managers were throwing him in the ring, and Ali was doing so willingly because he 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 had money he'd managed his money so badly he still needed to earn and he he just couldn't quite picture another life for himself you know he was he was offered parts in movies and he would sit there in the in the dressing room waiting for his turn to go out and act and he'd be bored out of his mind so he was the star of a movie and he was it wasn't enough to satisfy his need for attention because it had to be all the time and he really had a difficult time imagining something other than boxing that would satisfy all those urges that he felt and pay him. That's right. People, you know, sadly took a lot of his money or used a lot of his money, put his money into schemes or created sham companies that said they needed the money for. So he really became very depleted. And his last couple of fights were really tragic, actually. I guess you could say they sound incredibly sad. They were brutal. They were disasters. And watching them t today is just... Um, really tragic because he shouldn't have been in the ring. The people who loved him and cared about him shouldn't have allowed him to be in the ring. Boxing officials should not have allowed him in the ring. There's just no reason any of this should have happened. And the only reason was money. What did he say was his greatest fight? I think his greatest fight was the one he lost um, to Joe Frazier, the first Frazier fight in 1971, because he came back. He wasn't the same guy. He found a way to survive. He lost the fight, uh, got knocked down, but he got back up 
and and finished the fight. And I think that's the moment that fans went from thinking that he was a pompous jerk to seeing how tough he was and began to to show some some sympathy and some some empathy with him. You know, the Vietnam War was over. We could see that he was right. We could see that he'd sacrificed all of this for his religion. And when he gets back up off of the mat, we see the, the, the true champion in him. At about that time, the public gets to see evidence of the resilience of Cassius Clay, that he... It, you know, up until that point, maybe we have the impression that, you know, this all came easily to him and he sailed through and boom, he's he's the greatest and everything just happens and he's doesn't have to suffer very much. But we at that juncture start to see that, in fact, he's willing to dig in and try to overcome and sacrifice in these middle years of his life. That's right. And at the same time, he's moving away from the Nation of Islam a little bit. Elijah Muhammad is getting old and losing control of the organization. So Ali seems to mellow in the public's eye. He shows this toughness. He comes back from getting beat by Joe Frazier and starts working his way toward another shot at the championship. And he's not talking politics as much. He's not talking about uh, you know, spaceships that are going to come and destroy all the white people and black people are going to, to own the earth. He's 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 appearing on TV shows, he's sitcoms like Different Strokes. Um, he's he seems like a lovable guy all of a sudden, and and the, the public begins to embrace him in a whole new way. But it is about this time that he really ends his boxing career. Yeah, he comes back and he he wins the championship again. He beats George Foreman in Africa, and that's when he should have retired. But instead, it it, it winds down slowly and painfully. And then finally, um, after losing his last two fights, he quits. In, and um, and the 1980s after that are a really um, sad and hard time for him. He, he He's out of the spotlight. He doesn't like the way he looks on TV, so he avoids interviews. And he doesn't know what to do with himself. He, he drives around just looking for, for something to do. He, he shows up at trade shows. He'll, he'll sit and sign autographs in the airport. He'll go to the airport early just so he can sign more autographs because he has nothing else to do. It was a... People forget about this phase in his life, but the 80s were really depressing, I think, for him. And then in the 90s, he he sort of finds a way back or at least a place to to feel that he's contributing. Yeah. And this is kind of the, the beautiful coda to the story. He's invited to light the Olympic torch in 1996, and, and people have really kind of forgotten about him because he's been out of the spotlight for so long. And when they see him, when he emerges from the shadows, with this torch in his hand, you hear this collective gasp from the crowd, like, oh my God, that's Ali, and, and he's old. Look at him, he's, he's, he's only 45 at this point, but he looks like he's 65 or 75, and he's, his hands are shaking, and it doesn't look like he's gonna be able to light the torch because, because he can't control the movement of his arm. And then when he gets the thing lit, this, this sense of relief, and the crowd starts to chant his name, Ali, Ali, and that's a moment of reinvention for him, really. He says the very next day that I'm going to be bigger than ever. I'm, they're going to love me more than ever now because they can see that I'm old and I'm weak. And we all get old and we all die. And people are going to love me more now that they see that, that I'm just like them. He invests himself at this point in basically, I guess we'll say, sort of philanthropic work. That's right. He spends pretty much the rest of his life preaching Islam, preaching in America that Islam is nothing we should fear and hate, going overseas to Middle Eastern countries and saying that America is a country of love and peace and brotherhood. Uh, he raises money for Parkinson's disease. 
um, you know, he still likes to have a good time. But um, and he also says that the Quran teaches that you will go to hell if you have more sins than good deeds. He calls it the tallying angel. He says there's a tallying angel who's keeping track of all of his good deeds and all of his bad deeds. And he's got he's done a lot of bad things. And now this is his chance to try to to get on the right side of the score. So he really continues to feel invested in his religion. He is Muslim. He tries to bring the communities together that we can tolerate each other. He he moves from his original feeling of we should be separate to we should be together, but everybody be able to be what they are. That's right. He embraces Sunni Islam. He He's no longer a member of the Nation of Islam as it's rebuilt under Louis Farrakhan. He abandons that and he, he he learns to really study the Quran. He learns to read better than he's ever read before by by learning to, to read the Quran. And he absolutely embraces the the principles of the of the religion in, in in the best way. He gives up the vanity that he had for so long. I mean, he doesn't have a choice if he wants to be in the public eye because at this point he is exceedingly symptomatic with Parkinson's, which at this young age is is clearly directly related to the years of head trauma from boxing. He talks about that. He talks about the fact that boxers have to think about it. He, He understands that this is what's happened to him. And he tries to highlight and uh, raise money for research in the field of Parkinson's disease. Yeah, that's right. He'll, he'll go on saying that he's not sure that, that this has anything to do with boxing. He, he never really liked to admit that he may have brought this on himself. Really? He thinks he just had, I, I thought that he was, he understood that what he did had something to do with what has happened. I think he was in denial about that. I think he went on saying that, look, you know, uh, Janet Reno had Parkinson's and nobody punched her. So it could be that this just was something I was, you know, cards I was dealt. And and I think that, you know, he, he remained in denial about that. Mm. But uh, but he did try to, uh, you know, make up for some of the mistakes he'd made along the way. He tried to spend more time with his kids. He he sort of apologized for the, the way that he treated some of his, his opponents. He'd been really cruel to people like Joe Frazier. He turned his back on Malcolm X. And I think he expressed some regret for those things. So he did live his last years trying to do better. His kids have stated that he was much more of a father later in life, that he was a fairly absentee father early on for them. Yeah, that's right. And and he was much better as a grandfather and um, loved to spend time with, with the kids and the grandkids as he as he was older. And um, unfortunately, at that time, you know, he, he didn't have as much to give because he was um, limited by his abilities. He did receive treatment, but ultimately... Parkinson's is a, you know, response to treatment for only so long. And ultimately, Parkinson's does take your life. And sadly that he died. He wasn't so old when he died, but he he really died of his Parkinson's disorder. Yeah, that's right. For a boxer, he was old. Boxers don't tend to have long lifespans. And when I went to Ali's memorial service and I went to the private ceremony afterwards and saw his friends and family there, you could instantly tell who the boxers in the room were because none of them looked good. And there were very few people even in their 70s. Boxers just don't make it very long, when they, especially if they have long careers like Ali did fighting, you know, dozens and dozens of times. But he still managed to keep his legacy, I think, in all our minds as, uh, as, as moving like a butterfly and staying like a bee. <laughs> yeah, that's how we remember him in the ring. But I think, you know, his great legacy is, is outside the ring as well, and maybe even more 
outside the ring than inside because he's remembered as somebody who fought for what he believed in, stood up for his for his religious principles, confronted a country's um, lies about Vietnam, and sacrificed for his beliefs. And, and I think that's how we'll always remember him. What shone through was his authenticity, his love of people, because that was clearly in that, in, in some ways, a capacity for empathy, though he didn't always use it, was really ultimately his legacy. Yeah, and I think it's really remarkable because a lot of people said to me after they read my book, um, I really struggled with, you know, how can I like this guy after the way he treated women, after the way he treated some of his opponents, people who were supposedly his friends. Um, but he kept winning me over again. There was this force about him, this this unbelievable charisma, this this charm that he somehow always managed to make me smile. And I think that was his great gift that, you know, it was almost impossible to stay mad at him for very long. He had so much love. Fascinating life. Thank you so much. This was terrific. My pleasure. That wraps things up for this episode. Thank you to my guest, Jonathan Eig. And if you'd like to know more about Muhammad Ali, you can check out his book, Ali, A Life. If you want to know more about the concepts in personology, take a look at my book, The Power of Different, The Link Between Disorder and Genius. For psychological advice, you can take a listen to my other podcast, How Can I Help? Follow me at Twitter at Dr. Gail Saltz. And until next time. Personology is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Dr. Gail Saltz and Tyler Klang. The associate producer is Lowell Berlanti. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. And right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com, the lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Are you feeling overwhelmed by anxiety, struggling to find restful sleep, or plagued by a restless inability to focus? It's time to break free from the chains of mental health challenges and discover a path to healthy living. Welcome to Amen University, founded by renowned psychiatrist and brain health expert, Dr. Daniel Amen. Dr. Amen, alongside a team of esteemed doctors and experts in their fields, understands the struggles you're facing and are here to offer solutions. From debilitating anxiety to sleepless nights filled with worry, our courses are meticulously crafted to target these specific challenges head on. Join us on a journey of transformation led by Dr. Amen and a roster of top-tier professionals. Say goodbye to the constant battle with 
with your mind and embrace a future filled with hope and possibility. Visit our website today to explore our courses and start your journey towards a brighter tomorrow. Use code BRAIN10 and get 10% off. That's code BRAIN10 and get 10% off your first purchase. Amen University, because your mental health matters. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.